0: This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 6th of August, 2019. And here is my anonymous co-host, who's not so anonymous. I've reverse-engineered his identity. It is Jan.
1: No! Like, don't, <laughs> don't say that. Now everybody will know who I am. I know, I know. Don't the tell my wife, is okay? aware
0: of your identity.
1: Just uh, don't tell my wife.
0: Uh, okay. I can't make any promises there. <laughs> When you have Welcome. to talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that time. Anyway, moving on. Um, mm, well, it's, it's Friday, right? It is Friday. <laughs> it is wonderful, wonderful Friday. Um, it's Friday, we're recording, you're listening on whatever drab and dreary day that might be. Maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, middle of the week.
1: I'm not Monday anyway. Or if, if it's Monday, then you're a week late. Shame on you. Yes,
0: this is true. Very late. But... Regardless, and all weekday and calendar sort of issues, it's a news episode, and we're here to talk about some news, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, and I want to do some uh, housekeeping notes first.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the only housekeeping notes I really have are... YouTube subscriptions, please, please, please. Yes, this will continue until we get our 100 subscribers, so the way to stop these uh, these comments <laughs> sliding in seamlessly, I think you'll agree, to the first part of these episodes is to go and hit up YouTube... Uh, subscribe to the Roaring Elephant podcast channel, and once we ha- hit a hundred, I promise I will stop uh, begging early on each and every episode. But until then, that's
1: what you've got to listen to. Well, he'll stop begging for the one hundred subscribers and start begging for the one thousand, right?
0: Uh, no, I'm going straight for the million. Okay, fair uh, you know, it's just, yeah, well, I, well, I think small. I I'm
1: sorry, it's big data,
0: <laughs> <laughs> big tech, big, big tech. tech, big tech.
1: Yeah, also, so, yeah, people, if go. you want to get some uh, pressure onto Dave to redesign that logo that he made so brilliantly last time, it says big data to become big tech, please send an email to uh, dave at drawingalphan.org.
0: No, no, what you need to do is you need to sign up to our Patreon, and uh, you need to, <laughs> we need enough people on the Patreon page <laughs> that will be able to allow me to purchase the tools that would allow me to re edit that uh, particular image. So, yeah.
1: Ooh, that's a real pipeline. Good thing we're anonymous. <laughs>
0: So there we go, YouTube and Patreon. Um, That's the groveling out of the way. Um, Let's get to some news.
1: Yeah, you go first. De-anonymize me.
0: So, article on Gizmodo, um, fairly unsurprisingly, um, revealing that anonymized data is easy to reverse engineer. Um, This is probably not all that surprising to a lot of people. Um, but the this is an article where several uh, researchers used 210 different data sets gathered from five different sources, including US government uh, information material, and were able to use a sort of machine learning um, a set of algorithms to pretty much tie down um people fairly accurately and essentially you know de anonymize um, the majority of these data sets uh, it, it's it's one thing to have anonymized data in isolation but you know the whole point of uh, data anonymization is it only really works in that particular isolation as soon as you add additional data sets that um, the your your concept of what is anonymized is is immediately at risk and uh, this article is interesting because this is actually people having done it which is good and it's it does show that these you know, these things are achievable um but it's also i would have hoped relatively obvious um that you know it data may be anonymized in isolation but get, get you know a variety of different data sources together almost certainly that anonymization breaks down fairly quickly
1: uh yeah i mean this should be well known by now and therefore probably isn't because uh, the common knowledge uh, common sense kind of thing Uh, but actually if you look at uh, gdpr one of the big things on gdpr is that certain data sets are not allowed to be recombined and as a company that gathers data you have to prove that you have done everything possible to avoid certain data sets to be grouped together again and the the main use case for that is well i got uh, sensitive data coming in i anonymize it by taking out the stuff that is uh, directly identifiable and now I have yep. de anonymized data set. Well, if I put them together again, of course they are no longer anonymous, obviously. But it's yep. a lot more complicated than that because you can have, you can take off the, the the personal stuff, throw it away, delete it, never see it again. But if you have enough data sets, as you say, you still start, yeah, being able to classify people to smaller and smaller groups until the point where you have only one individual left over.
0: Yep. There is actually a comment, um, fairly a fair way down in the um, in the article from someone called Bart underscore Man. Um, Boy, man, uh, and his his comment is uh, the entire story <laughs> should be published on Twitter next to the hashtag um, hashtag No Bleep uh, um everyone. Which you know, as I said earlier, this should be obvious. I mean, as you say, GDPR helps within the context of an organisation, but as soon as that organisation publishes that anonymised data, and other organisations can consume that and attach other other data sources that you know have some form of intersection, you know, away you go. It's It's one of those things I say, as as you said earlier, you would hope would be obvious, but I have a very strong suspicion it's not obvious. And that uh, to many people, they think that it ends with just um, anonymizing their data and then that's, that's it, you know, job done. That's the last they need to care about it.
1: Yeah. And if people, uh, think back, I think it's about a year ago now, we did a full episode on data gathering and how there are actually huge companies out there, Oracle being one of the biggest one, if I'm not mistaken, that actually re, well, they gather a lot of different data sources with the express intent of reintegrating them so that they have better personalization results. Which, well, if I rephrase that, means de anonymize the data again. <laughs> so it's not in these case, the researchers probably had to look around and get data sets from different places. Yep. Well, there's a whole industry going on today that does exactly that for exactly this reason. And yep. tightly regulated as it may be, since these guys are usually incorporating, incorporated as a little daughter sub company of whatever entity they belong to in the Cayman Islands somewhere. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, how far do you think anonymous anonym, anonym, or whatever, how far does not <laughs> being identified personally possibly go these days? And I can't speak English. Not very
0: far, not very far indeed.
1: And how much do we care? Because if you look at Facebook and all those things and Twitter, I mean, I'm a Twitter trad, according to uh, my colleague here, um, how careful are we these days and how, how, how? How much value do we still put on being anonymous in certain situations? Definitely. I mean, there are places where we want to be anonymous, but in general, I kind of feel like a lot of people don't really care that much about it anymore. Yeah, I'm using it anyway. Who cares? It's a good thing. Think to think this.
0: yeah, I th- I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of vitriol and outcry when something is. Uh, sort of announced or, uh, you know, uncovered. Uh, uncovered when people have lied about it when
1: they did they said like we're doing it all nice and no thing and in the end it turns out it wasn't I mean like the I mean both uh, Siri uh, the the, the Google thing and all of those uh, assistants have now turned out to be listening to your private conversations for improvement of product blah 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 although I must say that today I saw a couple of news articles where both Apple and Google said we're going to stop doing it in some shape way or fashion yeah, I believe that if you will, but it's just, yeah.
0: But I, I think the so that that's one thing, but I think a lot of people, when I say uncovered, I also I don't necessarily mean that a company was lying. I, I guess I mean uncovered in air quotes, because what I'm actually talking about is people just don't listen or read or take notice of, in many cases, what they're being told is being done with their data. They just go. They just click accept or next or you know skip or whatever when it comes to that big disclaimer. And I, I think there's a certain element of laziness when it comes to that. That people, um, I think people are have a very little understanding of the access that they're giving people to their data. If you look at the I mean, take a really simple example, like the permissions that um, most apps gain uh, when you install them on Android, for example. There's a whole bunch of permissions that various different apps request. And most people, I would be willing to bet, barely even glance at that list of permissions. Just click yes, just yes, next, go.
1: Well, if you have an an iPhone, you usually don't get a list. It just uh, puts it in the... I mean, on Android, when you install it, it still pops up a little thing. This app wants to access your blah, 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 blah. And you have to say, okay, again, on an iPhone, my wife has iPhone, it just installed it. (laughs) I mean, whenever... I I always take the example of uh, putting uh, Outlook on your phone. If your company Mm -hmm. has a... well secure IT department, you will get on Android a pop-up, okay, you install this, this means that your IT department gets control of your phone and they'll be able to remotely erase it. Which for me says, okay, you're not getting on my phone then. On Apple, they don't say anything. It just happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I think that that's, I think, it's not to me, it's not so much about the fact that people don't, um, you know, that people They don't value it. People don't (sighs) value it.
1: Yeah, I think, that's, I think even, that's
0: the kind of what I was getting
1: at. One one piece of GDPR is also that eu EULAs and user license agreements need to be yep. understandable and not because yeah, you're right. Before you had these like pages and pages and pages of legalese text that nobody understood, even the guy who wrote the thing probably. I mean, I wouldn't imagine I would be it's very surprised if you look at some stuff and there's some lorem ipsum in between there just to make more text. <laughs> could be, could be, <laughs> and that's no longer allowed if you're in the Europe side of the world. And at least you have that being improved and have seen some things improving there. But still, it's I, I get this cool new thing I want to play with, use, uh, whatever. And I have to go through pages of... Te- ah, forget it. Okay, I agree. But,
0: but I think that the... Uh, the, th- the thing that I was getting at is it's not so much... So yes, it is that I don't think people do value their privacy in that way. But I think that... That's not entire. That's not the entirety of the story. I think is that they don't really care about their "quote unquote" privacy or their the data that they're sharing until there's a big news story that blows up that says, "Do you realise, you know, you've been sharing this, which means this?" Then they go, "Oh, this is terrible. This company has done terrible things with all of my data." Well. You you agreed to that. You yep. agreed to sharing your data when you just skipped past that thing that said, "Are you sure you want to share all this?" And you just went yes. So, and, and what yeah, terrible I it, thing actually happened? What is again? so
1: what is so terrible that happened at that point? I'm not quite sure what you mean. Well, you say this company has been using my private my private data, and they did something terrible with it. Okay, they gave you targeted advertisements, so um, instead of having stuff for diapers when you don't have babies, you get stuff about IT because you're a programmer. Is that bad? Uh, yes, but I got the, denied my uh, my loan for a house because... <laughs> yeah. yeah, but before this whole thing, you had to fill in a 20-page questionnaire at the bank giving exactly the same data, and you still got denied the loan. Yeah. So... Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to advocate here that we should all give everything away. I don't want to go that far either. There needs to be regulation. There needs to be of course, uh, checks and balances in place and stuff and that. But if you really look at the end of the line, how much, and I, might, I may be naive here, and please, if you have some examples to contradict me, you, Dave, and you, listener, tell me, let me know, but how bad is it actually at the bottom line?
0: Well, so I think what, like, let's take an example Uh of fitness tracking companies that ended up sharing out routes that people were taking to and from work. Yeah. That's, that's a fairly. Why? uh, Well, because it potentially shows when people are out of their homes. Um, We've seen uh, breaches of. Data breaches where information has been stored and shared, which shows that you know when people are setting their alarms and not setting their alarms, potentially indicating when their properties are vulnerable and things like that. So, I think it's it's usually it's a combination of things. It's a data breach and an organisation storing more data than the yeah. consumer was maybe aware of things like again, that are, i guess more about, what I'm
1: talking about how how more uh reasonable is it to assume that a burglar knew my house was empty because i had put something in my banking app and that company was breached three years ago versus i put on facebook i'm going on holiday
0: <laughs> well yeah that's one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I again. That's, that's to do with people having a exactly a, a lack of a lack of control over their own data and well, a lack of restraint over their own data. Yeah, and um, they they could very easily not post I'm going on holiday uh,
1: but yeah, they but choose to because we still go to the hairdressers and talk about going on holiday next week even if you don't put it on Facebook and your your burglar isn't going to be burgling you from Romania if you're living in America, sorry for Romanians I didn't want to point you out here from any kind of country usually burglars are very close to where you live, they don't do international mm-hmm. burglaring because that's unpractical although if you're in a border zone I guess it's possible but still well, you know Large, large scale art thieves yeah but if I had that kind of art in my uh, gallery uh, I, I won't have it insured anyway and insurance is going to force me to put a lot of security around it so <laughs> I mean if it ever happens that this insurance company says your Picasso was stolen and we're not going to reimburse you because you put ah, on Facebook you went on holiday yeah then yeah, we have I'm a problem but I problem. haven't seen anything like that happen. That's pretty much my point here. Yes, it is a privacy intrusion that people know more about me, you, whatever. but really, basically, what bad things have actually happened specifically because of that, and not because of us just yeah blabbing
0: <laughs> well, I think people are the people are suing for emotional damages. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like the U.S. guy that had, I put my cruise control up, I put my uh, GPS on, now we're going to make some coffee in the back. Oh, God, I got a car crash. It actually happened. (laughs) Oh, dear. And that's not a Tesla, guys. That was just a mobile home somewhere was years ago. I still remember that because I was thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, again, I want to reiterate I'm not saying that business should be able to do whatever they want. There should be checks and balances. I think cheap DPR is a very good thing. It'll be abused like every other good thing. <laughs> yeah. But things like that need to be there just to make sure that everybody stays, well, at least, aware of the fact that they're being ethical or not, good or bad, whatever Indeed. you want to call it. But that being said, all of these, oh my God data breaches are bad people should secure their stuff definitely yeah that being said unless you ha- you're hit by a, a wanna cry virus that has encrypted all your data and now you can't have any pl- any plane leave hetero or whatever yeah that bad that's bad but that's not a person's problem that's companies Yep. if you disagree let, let me you know don't. podcast at running <laughs> moving on uh yeah i wanted to have something that will some clickbaity stuff so i got an article that says will complexity kill kubernetes or kubernetes or k8 netis whatever you want to call it these days and the reason i took i found this on twitter actually uh, from time to time i just perused twitter on hashtags to see what people are writing about this one popped mm-hmm. up sounded like an interesting uh, article Uh, subtitle is, Kubernetes won't be the first huge open source project to collapse under its own weight, but its champion says it's different. Then the article kind of goes askew very much from the first phrase (laughs) by comparing Kubernetes to Hadoop. Now, I think nobody's going to contest that hadoop was and still is a complicated thing i'm not gonna call it a complicated mess though some people do but it is Mm -hmm. a amalgam of a lot of different things that have to work just right together to have something that works okay and i agree with that hadoop is a complicated thing that's why i was able to make a very good living helping people use hadoop which Mm -hmm. is a good thing Comparing Kubernetes with Hadoop though is a bit of a stretch because Kubernetes, yes, it's a lot more simple because it's one thing. It's a orchestrator. You can run a lot on Kubernetes. You can do, you run everything on Kubernetes, but that's not part of Kubernetes. So Kubernetes just is an abstraction layer, and if your other side application conforms to the API that Kubernetes expects, it works well together. So they nicely div- d- divided that. Uh, into two camps if you look at hadoop that wasn't a fact if you want to compare hadoop and kubernetes i'd say you have to uh, compare yarn to kubernetes Mm -hmm. and at that point yarn was a pretty simple thing it was a scheduler that had an api and if you confirmed to the api you could use it on yarn and uh, if you didn't you couldn't but the the differences
0: that we're saying here i think Mm -hmm. at least are that um While those two comparisons are relatively similar, the differences are that the underlying kind of dependencies from from Yarn all of a sudden got to be very, very complicated, and that whole ecosystem got very, very complicated. Whereas at the moment, relatively speaking, in comparison, the sort of underlying components and um, sort of elements additionally required to run Kubernetes are a lot more lightweight, a lot simpler.
1: Um, yeah, can you tell me what the requirements are to run Yarn? Just Yarn, nothing else but Yarn.
0: Well, no, it's not just about running it; it's about doing something useful with it, which is uh, kind of is my point. Mm. It's Yarn on its own is uh, not a great deal of use. Kubernetes, when you're talking about it as something that is mm-hmm. deployed on its own. Is useful. You can go and start spinning up instances and start doing something. Yarn on its own, you know, yarn with that workload, you know, workloads immediately you start to add more, you know, significantly more complexity. Whereas
1: Kubernetes, you're not. Yeah, would be my argument. Conversely, Kubernetes is a lot more complicated than Yarn. I'd say. Would you? Uh, yeah, because you have the whole API around it. You have kubectl, you have uh, different layers. If you go to different clouds, uh, Yarn just has one quite simple API. This is job to run, this is resources make it so... As you say, Kubernetes can do a lot more out of the box because mm. it's a more expansive scheduler. It has more stuff in it, which makes it more complicated.
0: Nope. Yeah. No, I think that's fair, but... And also, In, Kubernetes can only run the, one the, job. The ecosystem, I was going to say, the
1: ecosystem
0: to go from zero to Kubernetes up and running, I think, I believe, is a large degree simpler than the ecosystem required to go from zero to having...
1: yeah, do yarn something running. useful. Yeah. So would you say then the blame is with the... Um, you say that uh, the distributor builders, although there were never a distribution for yarn, of course, there was always a distribution for more than yarn. And um, mm. yeah, th- again, that that's probably where the complexity from Hadoop comes from because it was never deployed or or sold or or, or packaged as just the scheduler part. It was always the scheduler part with all this other stuff on top. And that's why I think it's kind of unfair to compare it to Kubernetes because Kubernetes is still being deployed as just Kubernetes that can do one thing. It can run a Docker container in an orchestrated manner. And the Docker container takes over the next step of the complexity.
0: But I don't think that they are comparing them like for like in this sense. They're just saying, this is a large open source project or set of projects that was complicated and actually is now doing not so well. And this is another open source large open source project that is doing substantially better. And I my my view here is they're not they're not trying to compare them like for like. They're just mm-hmm. saying these are two things being consumed by business. Hadoop is, you know, potentially, according to this article at least, you know, running out of gas, <laughs> whereas Kubernetes 100%. is continuing to accelerate. Um you know, I I don't I don't necessarily disagree with the with the premise here. I I, I don't think they're trying to say that one of these things is like the other. Mm-hmm. I think they're just trying to compare them as open source projects that are going through that enterprise adoption phase, and you know, one of them is one of them seems to be reaching a a good sort of tractable escape velocity, whereas the other one is at the very least, you know, leveling out, if not potentially even on the decline.
1: Uh, Do you agree that when they say Hadoop in this article, they mean the whole Hadoop ecosystem, including Spark and Hive and uh, Impala and whatever, and not just the Hadoop library? Yeah, I would think so, yes. Now, at some point, um, I'm Thinking back of Mesos now, which is uh, used to be a competitor for Kubernetes still around, I think, but has a lot less uh, visibility these days. But uh, Mesos tried to become more relevant at uh, near the end of its popularity peak, if I can call it that, by bundling applications. If you installed Mesos, you kind of got sparked with that as well as a native application kind of thing. Now, Hadoop... As the article says, ultimately ultimately ran out of gas because it was incredibly hard to use because of all of the add-ons being put on top of that. Mesos kind of went the same way. Do you think Kubernetes is going to be able to stop going that way? Because every vendor out there that builds something tries to make their thing more sticky by doing everything. That's, yeah, one of the... uh, yeah. I guess it's a danger on the horizon for a lot of open source things trying to do too much and losing their identity through the thing. You think Kubernetes will be able to uh, escape that?
0: I would hope so, because I would hope that Kubernetes will continue to focus on that core, and it will be up to other organisations to differentiate themselves by adding kind of layer on services that make value. Um, I don't, I don't see any signs that that's going to be the case. Yeah, that sort of.
1: Uh, that's
0: going to be the case with Kubernetes at the moment, but yeah, who knows?
1: Well, there is the possibility of extending Kubernetes by adding operators to it, making of course, Kubernetes yeah. understand things it didn't understand yet. And that's just a connector, let's say, to have a product XYZ easily deployable on a Kubernetes thing. But it does add more knowledge and more... Uh, automatism, perhaps, but at least more knowledge, more capabilities to the Kubernetes platform. And um, again, I'm not saying they're they're not there yet, but it does seem like a slippery slope towards <laughs> the dark side. Yeah, but
0: whether <laughs> but whether that
1: would be actually still remain as part of core
0: Kubernetes, or whether that would just be a series of of, of add-ons that are available. That that's the for me that's the kind of differentiator here. If we say if we're talking about Core Kubernetes, mm-hmm. whether that stays, you know, on that 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 vision uh, at the moment, and certainly from um, yeah, attending KubeCon earlier in the year, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of their focus does seem to be more on of the more on the side of simplification and um, ease of use, ease of deployability, ease of um, long term running and maintenance. Um, and not kind of blowing out features and functionality, not kind of charging down that path. Obviously, things are still yeah. improving and adapting, but. But will they stay in the control? core? Right now, the core direction now doesn't seem to be, um, at least from from my visibility, doesn't seem to be kind of bolting on
1: or blowing out new features left, right, and centre. Yeah, but will it stay in control? Because you could uh, say the same for Yarn, which was also relatively lean and mean and doing the one thing and trying to keep it as simple. But people didn't distribute Yarn. They distributed the Hadoop stack with uh, the Spark and the Hive and whatever on top of it. At a certain point, people will also start and already are uh, deploying, uh, distributing things that have Kubernetes as a part of the thing. So, Yeah. yeah, we'll see. Personally, I'm not convinced Kubernetes will be able to um, avoid the complexity trap, if that's a word, <laughs> if that's a phrase. But uh, time will tell, I guess. Indeed. Now, going on to my second article, I'm going to go by article (laughs) 2.5 because I tried to find a nice segue. Well, I didn't try it. I found a nice segue on an older article from the O'Reilly site on complexity and big data. So if you are trying to figure out a little bit more, because the first article was a bit clickbaity, it wasn't that much in-depth, just a nice talking point. The second article on the O'Reilly site does have a little bit more science behind it, let's say. But the fun thing about that one, it also talks about how... Uh, distributed systems are hard. And Hadoop and Spark are, I guess, the most well-known distributed systems uh, in the big data ecosphere. And by making things distributed, that does make things harder because instead of looking at one process on one chassis, you have to look at a cluster with clusters, heartbeat synchronizations and distributions and uh, schedulers and stuff like that. And at the bottom of it, it has a little phrase saying that Kafka is a great example of how making a system distributed makes it more complex. And by coincidence, I found the actual article I want to talk about here, which is understanding Kafka with Factorio. It's on Hacker Noon. It's by uh, Ruert-Jan Puhl. And if you don't know what Factorio is, um, if you're a gamer and you like uh, complicated uh, builder games, then Factorio will be no uh, unknown entity It's one of those games that allows you to start from scratch with a pickaxe and start building very complex things in an automated factory way. And if you've ever looked at Kafka and you you don't know Kafka yet, it's a bit hard to get your head around the whole thing about topics and partitions and getting it all, all those abstract things in your head. Well, this little article does a very nice job of actually explaining how Kafka works by using factorial constructs. Now, one of the reasons that uh, Dave keeps harping on our YouTube presence is that this is another article that makes for very great radio because it's very visual. (laughs) There's these nice little photos, animated GIFs in there, which I would love to show you, but I can't. So link in the show notes and go and take a look at that. But if you look at the first two images there, it kind of shows you what the problem is with a a not decoupled system. If your system is really synchronously handing from one point to the next point, if anything breaks you start losing stuff. By putting buffers in between, that solves the problem. And again, it, 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 he he uh, rec- reconciles everything from that factorio nice graphical layout to then this is how Kafka actually does it behind the scenes. And it actually, the furthermore more I read, I thought, okay, at some point this has to break, right? But nope, it goes on very <laughs> far until he actually has to, can see the feed and say, yeah, now when we start duplicating things out of thin air, yeah, that doesn't work in a virtual practical environment anymore, (laughs) like Factorio. But again, if you are doing stuff with Kafka and you want to have a kind of fun and still interesting introduction to what the concepts are, I really like this article. (laughs) What I don't see here is
0: whether or not... uh, Yeah, I don't think I can see it. Whether or not you can actually download the... Level or sandbox or whatever that the author built, because I think that would be really quite cool. <laughs> uh,
1: and no, you can't build, you can't download it because you have to download the safe game for Factorio, and you would have to have Factorio to make it run. But that being said, if you have played Factorio before, these things aren't all that complicated to put down. So, and having the visual thing. Now, what you, he could have done is there are some open source websites out there that allow you to put in uh, Factorio re- recipes and then have uh, web representations of them. He could have put. Them on there i don't think he has no i, so. I can't see uh, anything like that but again yeah. these things are fairly simple because every image is separate from every other image it's not like it's one big connected thing right yeah yeah now you can build but, a... uh, I, go
0: ahead i I would, I would i would just love to see an entire kafka system from start to finish built in this and be able to kind of <laughs> Zoom through it. I just think it'd be cool. But yeah, no, I, th- I think so I think it's a great article. I'm I'm a huge fan of this kind of um time sink. <laughs> um yeah. and uh, yeah, it looks like a lot of fun, so I will have to
1: stay well, well, well away from it. Oh no, I I, pre- I predict that by next week you'll be well deep into Factorio. <laughs> if it, if no Factorio, then there's Satisfactorio, but this does it all in 3D and everything. So it's a, it's a big bit to fall in. Fair enough,
0: fair enough anyway <laughs> so speaking of uh, big pits to fall into um, <laughs> one of the uh one of the the changes on the horizon here is apparently um and you know some some uh, of us have been aware of some of the sort of uh, rumblings behind this for some time, but now officially. Um, Cloudera is talking about the fact that they are following the uh, the HortonWorks original kind of open source lead and are open sourcing um, their sort of, their product line um, and aligning their sort of business model with the original HortonWorks uh, business model. Um, this is uh, this is sort of something that was hoped and maybe by some people even expected. Um, you yeah, know, when the merger happened. But uh, we, we've now seen, um, who's this uh, Cloudera's general manager of strategic business, uh, Charles Zawilski, and uh, CPO Aaron Murphy talking about the fact that uh, the Cloudera is now aligning its business model with the, the traditional Hortonworks one. So I think it's a, a good... You know, a piece of good news in the in the merger um, the article does talk about the fact that it 's been a little bit of a uh, a rocky uh, few months uh, for a while now um, you know, following the merger but I think this is a a bright ray of sunshine in the overall uh, news here because I think this is one of the things that a lot of uh, customers and current users of the uh, you know legacy hornworks platform were very aware of and very concerned around, so I, th- I think this is all good news, and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, some sort of uh, some sort of bump in the share price from this uh, from this news and this sort of clarification um, coming out there. Well, stock was up uh,
1: about a dollar, I guess, uh, today. I'm not sure if it's related to this, though. Uh, But if I read the article, they're actually going to go further than Hortonworks did, because by the time Hortonworks wrapped up, um, Hortonworks actually had some proprietary stuff on top of their open source core, let's say. Things like the life science manager, um, the data steward stuff. Those were not core services, but more... Quality of life things, if I can say that, uh, things that make the thing use, e- easier to use and stuff. Uh, going back to the complexity of using uh, big data things, and if I'll read this here, uh, just gonna quote from the article: "When the change to open source is completed early next year, current proprietary offerings such as Cloudera Manager, navigated their Data Science Work, sorry, Data Science Workbench, Cloudera Data Platform, Private Cloud, and CDP Data Center, which are." typically those ease-of-use, quality-of-life things will be free for users to download and use. So it looks like even the higher-level, I'm not going to call it application, because it's still something you use to make applications with, but the data science workbench, for instance, was something that typically I would expect it as a closed-source thing on top of the open-source generic thing. Uh, Not generic thing, but if you kind of catch my drift, but it looks like they're going to be open-sourcing everything.
0: So so the aim, when I was when I was there, uh, when I was at uh, Hortonworks, the aim was always that, that that would have happened regardless, but it would be um, AGPL2. And if you actually look at the uh, blog post that was referenced, although don't try clicking on the link in the article because it doesn't work, uh, I've had to find it separately... Um they do in fact they do indeed say that uh, they've decided that it will be split between um the the sort of um the AGP the Apache license version two or the AGPL um license. So yeah, for those that are not fluent
1: in licenses, what's the main difference between the two? What's the driving force behind that choice?
0: I, I I don't know enough to be able to go into that as a as a sensible conversation. I really don't. I have my own opinions, but uh, I I wouldn't want to uh, I wouldn't want to dive down that particular rabbit hole. Is that we 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 really should have a session with someone that is very yeah. fluent in those topics because I think that would be a good discussion. Um, but yeah, they, they plan to make the uh, the changes with all new releases, including, interestingly, um, both going back to HDP and CDH. So it's not just oh, wow. um, a change to the upcoming yeah. CDP platform, but it's something they're going to roll out um, to the previous. Um, yeah, it kind of makes sense as well. Right. I
1: mean, they're, they're hoping they're going to be selling the, the newest version anyway. So the older versions just become a hassle at that point and technical death. Yeah, yeah.
0: But it, it's mm-hmm. as with all these things it's it's a marathon not a sprint and you know they talk about dates like uh, between September two thousand and nineteen and January 2020 they'll be you know establishing uh, new open source projects for as you mentioned the formerly closed source components and mm-hmm. begin licensing them under the AGPL so I think this is good this is a good um, Unearthing is not quite the right word, but sort of a good um, clarifying blog post that really does set out a lot of things that I was under the impression when I was at HortonWorks slash Cloudera that that were the the plans to to actually you know go and go and do. Um, but this is the first time I've seen it, you know, publicly stated. So I'm mm. I'm very very positive about this. I. Um, you know, I, I very much look forward to this You know, Cloudera Manager, Cloudera Navigator and Cloudera Data Science Workbench all being available under open source licenses. I think it's great news for everybody. And I uh, uh, am yeah, very positive about this and I, I look forward to uh, seeing all of these plans come to fruition.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting uh, paragraph near the end of the article. Um, apparently at least this author of this article seems to have picked up on the quote, quote, fact that they are doing this as a response to competition from AWS. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read part of the paragraph here. If competition from the likes of AWS is in fact the main motivator behind Cloudera's move to become 100% open source, it's ironic. The same competitive pressure is currently driving other open source companies, primarily database vendors, to move away from being completely open source and adopting proprietary source available licenses for their code. So, it's going to be interesting to see, because, again, by making everything open, it also potentially fragments the environment. Now, while it will, of course, quite, I would assume, accelerate adoption of this thing, because it's a lot easier to start working with something if you don't have to pull up your checkbook first. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how yeah, if it's going to start prolif- proliferating beyond control... Mm-hmm i guess hadoop is uh, as we as we mentioned in the earlier uh, articles hadoop is complex enough that it's not going to be any uh, guy any any person is going to start building their own hadoop from scratch or start to but take it stuff yeah i would but very much um, doubt that at this point <laughs> it will make it easier for people to reuse and yeah take ownership let's say of parts of the software mm. so uh, it's an interesting subject
0: yeah indeed And uh, who knows, maybe we'll talk talk about it in
1: more depth in an upcoming episode. Stay tuned. If you think we should, let us know. If you think we shouldn't, let us know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's it from me. That's it from you, and that's it from me. It's it as well. I have nothing else to talk about. Uh, Just to say that it's all we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution helps. Thank you very much to our existing patrons. If you're also on YouTube, like, subscribe, hit the notification bell to make Dave happy. Do all the YouTube stuff. I guess you wrote that there. Uh, become a subscriber. We're still <laughs> hunting for that 100 subscriber. A limit just to become a presence to be reckoned with, I guess. Please go to www.roaringoff.org. You can find a link to our Patreon page there and more information about the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using the adhadoopcast tag and you can send your feedback by traditional email to podcast at until next time, my name is de-anonymized Jon. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.